Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we take a moment to look in your scriptures. I pray that you will open our eyes spiritually to see. Help us to comprehend uh, the truth that you've presented in this scripture. And I pray, Lord, that as a result of, of us studying this and learning this, that we will be uh, drawn closer to you, that we will be reminded of your amazing worth and uh, worthiness of praise and worship. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to respond and um, in humble uh, submission, and uh, Lord, I pray that you will captivate our hearts, change us, draw us close once again, and uh, Lord, I pray that we will also at the same time be reminded of what we need to uh, turn from and reminded of who we need to turn to for your glory. In your name I pray, amen. So we are in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Uh, we're continuing our study of uh, the book of Acts, and as we know from the last couple of weeks, we are in the city of Philippi. Uh, we saw Lydia's conversion last week. Today we enter into the ramifications of, or maybe better term, the consequences of Paul's ministry in the, in the city of Philippi. Uh, we're actually going to break the text down of the story of Paul's imprisonment and resulting release into several weeks of study. We're not going to look at the entirety of the storyline all the way through the end of the chapter today. Uh, we're only going to look at one section of it. Uh, the initial, you could describe it as the initial steps toward imprisonment, into imprisonment uh, by, by uh, uh, imprisonment of Paul and Silas. In any case, let's look at the text itself. We're going to be looking at verse 16 through 24 this morning. <clears throat> let's read it, and uh, you can follow along as I read uh, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. Luke records, as we are, were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become, become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these, Jew, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. The storyline, most likely for many of us, is relatively familiar. And that's good. But as we found just about every week as we work through familiar passages, there's all sorts of things that if we slow down and look at the things that are familiar, we are going to discover some things that perhaps we've never uh, thought of or observed or considered before. And I think we're going to find that today. It's an interesting study, uh, as I said, of, of the events leading up to and concluding in our text today of them being thrown in prison. 
there's three or four things I specifically want to target in the text because I think they're the, probably the, the most important of the events that are, are, that are transpiring. You'll notice, first of all, in verse 16, that they're going back to the place of prayer, which is where? Do you remember from last week? Down by the river, about a mile and a half outside of town. They're going down to the river once again. This time is not the time that we saw before that he went down. This is after Lydia's conversion. We don't really know how many times that they've gone down there at this point in time. It could be the next week. It could be several weeks. We're not really sure, but they're going back down to the place of prayer once again. As they're going down to the place of prayer, Luke records, they are met by a slave girl. That is, she's owned by other people. And you'll notice in the same verse, it describes that there are plural owners. Do you see that? So, more than one, there's several owners of this girl. You'll notice that um, the, the storyline in verse 16 says that this slave girl that meet them as they're going down to the place of prayer had a spirit of divination. That means she's possessed by a demon. And this demon is controlling her to do certain things or say certain things. And the big storyline we find out is it says in verse 16, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling or telling the future. And so these owners are making a boatload of cash over this woman who is going around doing what? Declaring the future. It's in the midst of this that she starts following, verse 17, she starts following Paul and us, including Silas and, and Luke himself, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now this is really interesting because she, what, is, what is her thing that she does? Fortune telling, right? She's telling the future. And what does she say about Paul and Silas and Luke? She foretells the future. Doesn't she? They're proclaiming the way of salvation. Salvation is referencing what? Rescue from death to life and moving people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and ultimately into glory. Correct? The people she's proclaiming it to are not yet believers, right? At this point in time, we only know of one believer. So she's proclaiming future things for people who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Does that make sense? So she is doing her thing, isn't she? And what she's saying, is it accurate or isn't it? It's very accurate, isn't it? She's writing the numbers. She's saying, once again, these men are servants of the Most High God. Is that true? Yes. She's saying, they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Is that true? Absolutely it is. But what's really interesting is verse 18. This should make you get confused a little bit, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, again. And this she kept doing for many days, which means it's not just the time that, she's going, that they're going down to the river, right? She's following around the city as well as down to the river. She's following them everywhere for many days. 
This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. That's an interesting curve. What's the curve? The curve is he's greatly annoyed with her. I know in the King James, Jim, it says that greatly grieved or grieved by her. The actual, the actual word that's being used here in the Greek is the idea of greatly or much anger, frustration, and, and that whole idea of anger and annoyment and frustration all come together into this word. Uh, so this is a situation where Paul is absolutely unhappy with her in every way, which ultimately when you read it, or at least initially when you read it, you say, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. Is she saying the truth or isn't she? Well, yes, but this is the same thing Jesus did in Luke chapter 4. When he rebuked the demons to quit speaking. Because he, he didn't want that to happen either. Why is that? Well, in both cases, the reason most likely is because although the truth is being proclaimed, it's most likely being proclaimed really sarcastically. But even if it's not being proclaimed really sarcastically, it could very well be that the demon within her, as well as the scenario in Luke chapter 4, is doing this to try to make it sound like that Paul and Silas and Luke and the spirit or the demon within here are all what? Of one accord. And they are not of one accord. So whether it is sarcasm that he, she is declaring this by the demon or whether it's a declaration to be a, that, hey, they're, they're, we're all of one accord, the issue is that it is for Jesus in Luke chapter 4 as well as for, for um, Paul and Silas and Luke in uh, this passage in, in Acts chapter 16, it is unacceptable. It is absolutely unacceptable. Now I want to pause yet on this to point out something else I find very intriguing. And this is, the, this is one of the big uh, challenges I find of this text as well as the text in, in Luke, but especially this text. Whether she's speaking sarcastically, the demon within her speaking sarcastically or not, we are all in agreement that the message is correct, right? We're all in agreement the message is correct. How often is she doing this? Or how often is the demon within her doing this? Uh, constantly, right? For many days. It's going on and on and on and on and on, right? This causes me to pause. Whether it's for sarcasm's sake or not. Whether it is for the purpose of trying to deceive the hearer into thinking they're all of one accord or not, the message is there. We've already established that. Right? Another way to put it, in this case we know the motive is bad. The demon is not doing this so that people will become saved. Correct? The demon's goal is not to see people saved. And it automatically causes my mind to rush over to Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, it's different. Because it's not demonic. But there are people, Paul's in prison in Philippians chapter 1, but 
people, as a result of Paul being in prison, are getting up and doing what? They're preaching the gospel. And he goes on and he says, now some of them are doing them in bad, with bad motives, and some of them are doing good motives. In other words, the bad motive part is they're trying to make Paul feel bad because he can't be doing it because he's in prison. And he goes on and he says, with regard to the situation later on, which, by the way, same city, right? Same city, Philippi. He says to them, so then, whether with good motives or bad, what? I will rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. In this case, we have a demon doing it for only bad motives, right? It's deceptive motives that, that are very different from what's taking place in, Phil, uh, in, in the letter of Philippi, to Philippi later on, probably 10, 12 years later. Very different. But it's interesting. What I'm trying to get to in this point for this uh, section that we're looking at right now is I find it interesting that, that the message being proclaimed by the demon is right. As far as it goes. It's right. And what sets my mind to wonder is, I'm going to just state it as bluntly and plainly as possible, is the demon doing a better job of evangelism than we are? Just asking a question. Now I know Paul rebukes, but he rebukes him for the, rebukes the demon for a very specific reason to, to release the demon from her. And he does within the hour, of course, as you see. But my point is, he's pro- the demon's proclaiming the truth, is, isn't he? All wrong motives. But he's proclaiming the truth, isn't he? Yes, we've already established that. And so it causes me to pause in this really poignant section, and I think poignant point. Are we people who cry out the message of salvation? This is an unsaved girl with a demon with absolutely wrong motives, but the right message, proclaiming more effectively, if I may say that, more clearly, more consistently, more regularly, than the average Christian today. Isn't that true? Isn't it? It's really kind of odd. Isn't it? I mean, I find it intriguing that, that's why I bring up uh, the book of Philippians. I find it a little bit intriguing that in Acts chapter 16, we have a demon-possessed girl proclaiming the, the, the truth of the gospel in a nugget form but the truth of the gospel, do it repeatedly, continuously, f- for many days. You have in the book of Philippians, you have people getting up and preaching the gospel, some with good motives, some with bad. But today, what we find, for the most part, 
And I'm just saying, for the most part, I don't think we could say today, maybe I'm wrong, and if, I, you know, if this is not you, please don't take offense, but, but I think we would struggle today in the average church saying that the average church member is preaching the gospel. I think that would be a struggle. That would be a stretch in the average church today. Good motives or bad motives, right? Good motives or bad motives, generally speaking, I think it'd be a stretch. I do. You see, for, it's interesting, again, stepping outside of Acts, in the, in, in the, temporarily, we, and we, we certainly have to recognize in the city of Philippi, you got the whole thing starts off with Paul and Silas and, and, and Luke preaching the gospel and a girl gets saved by the name of Lydia. Correct? Saw it last week. And then we get a demon preaching too, right? And later on, we got a whole church that's proclaiming, right? Some with good motives, some with bad motives, but they're all proclaiming. Today, there's very little of it, isn't there? I guess what I'm trying to say is it's interesting how slowly the great slide has taken place. Isn't it? it, it it's, it's like there's been a movement among the church that's subtle and gradual. And, and again, I'm being general, but the movement away from the description of evangelism in the Scriptures and proclaiming the truth of the Gospel as it presented in the Scriptures to the point now where You've heard me say this before. The, 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 the greatest idea now is, is just invite people to church and let the professional tell them. That's really weird. We've got demons proclaiming the gospel. We've <laughs> got people with good and bad motives proclaiming the gospel. And now, there's very little of it. And I think we just need to recognize this. She keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. Of course, we're going to move on he cast the demon out of her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it comes out that very hour. Brings us down to verse 19. If you don't think that it really happened, the owners make it really clear that it happened. Don't they? But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, which is where the rulers typically would be doing their everyday judging uh, uh, above, you know, the, the everyday stuff, not the really crucial things, but the everyday stuff. They'd be just out in the market doing it. Verse 20, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, and then they bring up the accusations. It is interesting, they do not bring up the accusation about they took our source of income away. That's not something that they, they brought up. Why do you think that is? Well, to do so would be to acknowledge that Paul and Silas were what? What's that? They were correct. Yes. So they don't bring it up, but they're obviously upset enough that they take Paul and Silas to the magistrates for judgment. And they start out, and by the way, their, their, their declarations, their accusations against Paul and Silas are true. 
every step of the way. Number one, these men are Jews. Well, that's true, isn't it? By the way, there's a little racial thing going on there. But being Jews, they would not be citizens of Philippi, and therefore they wouldn't have all the blessings of being a citizen of the Philippi, because remember we said last week that Philippi was a really, or two weeks ago, that uh, being a citizen of Philippi was a very uh, coveted thing. These men are Jews, and he goes on, uh, the people go on and say, and they are disturbing our city. Well, is that true? Well, of course it is. How are they disturbing the city? Well, obviously they disturb these people, right? But how are they disturbing the city? Because the gospel does what? It what? It transforms, and and as it's transforming, it's also what? It's creating division, doesn't it? Is the gospel not an offense? Is Jesus not a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? Of course he is. The gospel is absolutely, if it's presented correctly, is absolutely offensive. Even the demon's declaration is inherently offensive. You know why? Because to say this is the way of salvation implies that you need to be saved, which implies that you need to be saved from something else. And that thing that you need to be saved from is, is by definition, destroying you. Does that make sense? So, when, when, when these people charge Paul and Silas of this, they are absolutely correct. They are disturbing our city. They are creating an uproar. They go on. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, that accusation is intriguing because they're right, once again. There's several ways in which they're right. One of the ways is that the Romans believed in many gods. Correct? Paul and Silas believe in one god. Not, not just one that's supreme above all others, but they only believe in one God. They're monotheists, where the Romans were polytheists. But on top of that, by Roman law, the only ones who could introduce gods were the Roman government. People could not introduce other gods to the people. I got a new God I want to tell you about. That, that doesn't fly. And so there are customs that are not lawful for us to, as Romans to accept or practice. was absolutely correct. One of the things I appreciate about these accusations is it introduces us to something that's going to become really poignant in just a little bit. And that is exactly what we were just talking about. The gospel is offensive. One of the things I love about the accusations is that it shows us that Paul's and Silas and Luke's ministry, primarily Paul and Silas, I suspect Luke is along primarily to document, at least primarily, which is why he doesn't get thrown in prison here. But Paul and Silas's declarations are clear. 
you get the sense that their declarations are offensive? Do you get that sense? There is no hope without offense. It is not the Christian's responsibility to remove the offense. To do so, we have to remove Jesus. Because he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, as we just said. To remove the offense is to remove the reason why you need Jesus. Is to remove the reason why you need a Redeemer. You see, the reason why we need a Redeemer is because we're fallen, sinful humans who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. That's the, that's, that's the declaration of the Scriptures. It is absolutely the declaration of the, of, of the Scriptures. To remove or minimize that offense removes or minimizes the need for Jesus and the need for a Redeemer, the need for salvation. The offense must be there. And one of the things that jumps off of the page to me with regard to the accusations is that the accusers are clearly recognizing the offense. Correct? They're clearly recognizing the offense. If they're clearly recognizing the offense, that means that the offense is clearly being presented. It is absolutely and clearly being presented. Now, it's very evident that the offense is coming through loud and clear, isn't it? But the embracing of the solution, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, salvation, is clearly being rejected. Because if it's being embraced, you're going to love the offense, aren't you? Aren't you? If, if Jesus has become your Redeemer, you love the offense. Even though you once hated it. And you love the condemnation because the condemnation brings you to Jesus. And it helps you remember and, and, and realize Their hope is in, as we talked about before, in alien righteousness, correct? And that's what you see here, is they're, they're recognizing the offense, but they're rejecting, they're turning their back on the Redeemer or the solution to the offense. And I think it's very important as Christians that we recognize that offense is necessary. And this is one of the really, really clear passages that expose the reality of the offense. It's so offensive that they react. Don't they? Now, let me just take a step out of Acts for a second and go all the way back to Mark. Way back in the day. You're going to have to go back into the dusty recesses of your life and your minds. But you may remember this. I'm going to see. This is the test. Quiz time. When you come in contact with Jesus, what? There must... Anybody remember? There must be a reaction or a response. There must be. When you come in contact, another way to put it is when you come in contact with, with the true gospel, there must be a response. And that response, we could add to it, that response must be driven by the Spirit. 
unless it's a reaction against. That's driven by the natural man and by the kingdom of darkness. But if there's a correct response to the gospel, Jesus, the response comes from the Spirit every time. But the point is, it, one of the two have to come. They do. Little, little note. This is just a, a note to help you. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they're not offended by it, they're not offended by it, it tells you something. It tells you one of two things. If they're not offended by it, either you didn't present it very clearly or completely, or they're believers and they're rejoicing because the Spirit's at work in them. For them to be apathetic about it tells us something. It does. To that, to, for them to be namby-pamby about it, non-responsive in any way, offense or rejoicing, no response at all, tells us something. And one of the things that always tells me is I better look, did I really present the gospel? Did I leave something out? Why is this person not offended? Especially if I know they're not a believer. Why is this person demonstrating no response? You don't see that in anywhere in the Scriptures. When the Gospel is presented, there is always an offense. And I find it really interesting how many Christians are afraid of that very thing. They're afraid that there will be an offense. There must be! And you see Paul and Silas clearly in their ministry, because they've been preaching, the, the offense is there. How much is it there? Well, you've got some people, a few people, who own this girl who lost their way of income, but in presenting it to the magistrates, what does it say? Verse 22. What's that? Yeah, but verse 22. The crowd joined in. You know what that tells me? When the crowd joined in in attacking them, I'm sorry? They were equally offended. Why? Because he was preaching. Paul and Silas were preaching an offensive gospel. They joined in in, in, in their offense in de declaring the offense. Publicly. Because the gospel is offensive. And so verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. And then the response is the magistrates, who most likely heard it as well over the last few weeks, however many weeks that the preaching has been going on, the magistrates joined in as well. So it's, first of all, it's these few owners, then the crowds in the marketplace, and lastly, the magistrates join in as well in attacking Paul. I mean, they're trying to keep, to keep um, neutral. They're magistrates, Right? But no, they throw the, 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 the towel in as well, and they do what? 
they tear the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Do you notice what's missing in the text in this trial? Evidence, yes. What else? They didn't ask if they were Romans. Good, what else? An actual trial. Where's Paul and Silas' defense? There's no Paul and Silas defense because elsewhere, Paul and Silas, or Paul gives defense, right? He does it. He gives, he's asked for a defense and he gives a defense. Here there's no defense. There's not even any evidence. There's just these couple people who make declarations. Everybody jumps in. The magistrates agree and go tear their clothes off and beat the stuffing out of them. Isn't that what happens? That's what it says. Tore off the garment, tore the garments off them, and gave orders to beat them with rods. This is like in between being beaten with whips and being stoned to death. It's worse than being beaten with whips. It's less than being stoned to death. This is an absolute thrashing. You get the picture, right? An absolute thrashing. How badly was it? Verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them. So they are absolutely thrashed. For what? For what? Preaching the gospel. They're not done yet. Because end of verse 23, They threw them into prison and ordered them Order the jailer to keep them safely, which of course Luke is presenting that to us because we know what comes in the next part of the chapter, right? But the point is, it's an unneeded command, isn't it? You turn a guy over to a jailer, isn't the assumption going to be that you keep him safely? Of course. So what happens next? Having received this order, verse 24, he, the jailer, puts them into the inner prison. So he doesn't just take them into the prison. He takes them to the inner prison, which is like the tightest, like um, maximum security, solitary, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> into the inner prison. And not only that, so there's gate after gate locked in front of them. He fastens their feet in the stocks. And I just want to, in light of what's coming up next week, I want you to understand that this is pretty serious. They've been totally thrashed, beaten with rods, absolutely pummeled. Probably beaten on the head, on the, in the face, in the back, all over. All over. They're absolutely broken. Bloodied, broken, bruised, thrashed. They're taken into the inner prison. They, are, they have stocks placed on their feet. And by the way, when you think stocks placed on their feet, don't think like you typically think wooden stocks and your feet are right here. No. Back in that day, your feet wouldn't be here. Your feet would be like this. I mean, it, you are put in a position of really gross discomfort. Okay? Got the picture? after being beaten with rods many, many times. And that also means, by the way, you're sitting 
in your own feces and your own urine. That's what you're doing. It's an ugly situation. Grotesque situation. Painful, horrifying situation. Yes? Secure. Securely. Yes. Lock them up so there's no way anybody can get to them and get them out. Or they can't get out on their own even. Yeah. So we've come to the end of our text. But we're not done yet. Because this last section just causes the mind to pause. Which is why I had Tom read the place in, in Hebrews 13. So let's jump over to Hebrews 13. We just looked at this on Wednesday night, this passage. I just want to come back to it briefly. Starting in verse 10. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to, to eat. Referencing Old Testament versus New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament Judaistic faith and New Testament Christian faith. We versus them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is, bought, is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So you have the animal coming into the temple, sacrificed in the outer courts, and then the blood is drained over the altar, and then the animal itself is taken outside the camp to a place of unholiness, uncleanliness, and it's burned and destroyed. Correct? But then he goes on and says, verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 12 is an interesting contrast with verse 11 because the animal's body was never taken outside to the unholy place, unclean place, till after it was dead and the body was drained. It never suffered outside the camp. Jesus, alive, suffered outside the camp. It's a complete contrast. And if you're curious about the text, you can always listen in on our study last Thursday. Sorry, last Wednesday night. It's on, on Facebook. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. We talked about the, the greater altar, the greater sacrifice, the greater blood, the greater ramifications. But notice verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. I want you to hear what the writer of Hebrews says. And it's a reminder if you were listening on Wednesday. It's a reminder in the dusty recesses of your mind when we were going through the study in Hebrews a while ago. But I want you to notice, again, as Tom mentioned, the imperatives are always preceded by what? By the indicatives or the statements of realities always are the foundation and precede the imperative. Here we have the imperative. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the approach he endured. The indicative is Jesus suffering outside the camp. Correct? That's the indicative. 
And by the way, the indicative also is the superiority of the entirety of his sacrifice. That's the indicative, the statement of reality, the, the superiority of it. And it's because of the superiority of Christ and the superiority of his sacrifice that we are called to what? Go to him outside the camp and what? Bear the reproach he endured. Can I just ask you a quick question? Did Paul and Silas bear the reproach? In Acts 16. Absolutely. Did they identify with the Romans, with the Philippians? Did they identify with the greatness of all the blessing of being a Roman? No! The identification was purely and simply where? Christ! And in Philippians, that's exactly what Paul says, doesn't he? About his Roman citizen, his Jewish citizen. He says, what? I counted all what? Dung! Is that what he says? I count all those things as dung. Why? For the surpassing greatness of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's exactly what Paul says. And for the reader of Philippians chapter 4, that section, they, if they are in Philippi, they have to reflect back to what happened 10 years earlier or so. He counts everything as done. Everything is worthless for Christ. You know, you know what that means? Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4, he's saying, I'm, I don't know about you all, but because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus accomplished, because of the superiority of his sacrifice, and the superior of all that, superiority of all that, I'm going outside the camp. And I'm going out to bear the rebuke. I'm going out to, um, uh, to bear the reproach just as he did. And then he goes on into verse 14 of Hebrews 13. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It is interesting that he returns to the indicative in verse 14. Not a command here. He says, for we, here we have no city, again, indicative, declaration of reality, but we seek the city that is to come. It's not a command to seek. It's the indicative we do seek. Why? Because of the superiority of Jesus. Because of the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. The command is verse 13. And it's based upon the indicative that this city, which is referring to all that we have here, this city we have, in this city we have what? What does it say, verse 14? We have nothing, right? We have, but for we have no lasting, for here we have no lasting city. In other words, everything here is what? Temporary. Everything here is passing. Everything here is insignificant. Kind of ties to what you were talking about in the confession this morning, Tom. Everything here is insignificant, ultimately. in light of the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. 
Is that what he's saying? And is that not consistent with 2 Corinthians chapter 4 at the end? We don't look at the light momentary afflictions because they have, they're nothing compared to the vast weight of glory. Is that what he says? Based upon the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished and the superiority of who he is and what he's done on the cross. The result is, the result is we go outside the city. We go outside the camp and we suffer the rebuke. We suffer the reproach. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas and Luke come into Philippi and they preach the gospel and people are offended. And they meet Lydia by the river and she's offended. But the offense brings her to worship and to repent and believe. And then, she, then, then Paul and Silas meet this other girl, slave girl, who is presenting the right message but for all the wrong reasons as being driven by the demon. He rebukes the demon. The demon is driven out of the woman. And the offense continues. Doesn't it? The offense continues. As a matter of fact, it doesn't continue. It gets worse. It escalates. Because now they're drug off to the magistrates. The charges are brought in this kangaroo court. The crowd joins in in the kangaroo court, screaming for their heads. The magistrates join in. We've already seen it. Paul and Silas get beaten and thrown in prison and we know what happens next, don't we? I mean immediately next. We're going to get to it next week, but immediately next what happens? Before that, before the jailbreak, singing and praying and rejoicing. What are they rejoicing over? Now generically Jesus, right? Yes, they're rejoicing that they have the privilege and honor to go to him outside the camp. That's why. Now, I don't want to spend time on that because that's not part of the message, but you get the point. The, the, the clarity of the text is stark. For Paul and Timothy, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas, and Luke, the city, literally, the city of Philippi offers them what? Nothing. Nothing. Except to suffer for Jesus. But in suffering for Jesus, they're coming outside the camp. Aren't they? They're coming outside the camp. So their view of Philippi is an opportunity to proclaim Christ and suffer for Christ. End of discussion. That's the entire package. Isn't it? It's the entire package. Proclaim Christ, suffer for Christ. And that's what you see every step of the way from here on out. They're going to go someplace, proclaim Christ, suffer for Christ. Proclaim, proclaim Christ, suffer for Christ. Proclaim Christ, suffer for Christ. Join in the reproach. Can I ask us to challenge ourselves 
with a really important question. What is it about the approach of Christ that I fear? And why? What keeps me? What keeps you? from going to him outside the camp. I think I know what the answers are going to be. The answers are, are, are several fold, but they are going to be summed up with two things. Second, the secondary thing and the primary thing. The secondary thing is going to always be I value other things as important that I don't want to sacrifice. That's always going to be there. And number two is always going to be, I don't value Christ. It always will. I don't value Christ. And you notice I used an absolute term there, I don't value Christ, and a lot of people would react to that statement. They would say, whoa, 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 back of the horses up. Yeah, I value these other things too much, and yeah, I don't value Christ enough. Yeah, I get that. And I say, no. If you don't value Christ enough, you know what that means? You don't value Christ. Because if you don't value Christ enough, you know what that means? It means you have in your mind an understanding of a different Jesus. Because for you, that Jesus isn't valuable enough. That's not the real Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures. That's not the real one. It just isn't. The real Jesus... (laughs) cannot be trivialized that way by a believer, by a follower. I can trivialize or minimize a lot of things, but the one thing I cannot, if I understand Jesus correctly, and I actually do worship that Jesus, I cannot minimize him. And I cannot trivialize him. And I cannot have other things above him. Because that's an absolute denial of what the gospel really says. It just is. It just is. And yet, what do we have? We have echoing through the scriptures over and over and over again. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? And I will give you rest. And that rest is not absence of reproach. But I'll give you rest in the midst of the reproach. We have echoing through the pages of the scriptures. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have echoing through the pages of the scriptures. We have the statements such as drink and keep drinking at the fountain of living water. And out of you will flow rivers of living water. Is that what we have? And we have many others, don't we? The statements are everywhere. Everywhere. And that is the call. In the Old Testament, we have a statement such as, is there no balm in Gilead? Is the solution not close? 
In the Old Testament, we had people who were driven, digging cisterns that could hold no water, and right in their eyesight, they could see, spiritually speaking, there's the fountain. There is the water. But instead, they're digging cisterns that could hold no water because their ways are better. The call is to repent and believe. The call is to, is to turn. The call is to confess. The call is to drink. And the promise is when we do, when we do, we will begin to understand, as we've talked about so many times, by the Holy Spirit, we will begin, under, begin to understand, for example, of that greater food that Jesus talked about that the disciples knew nothing about. We will begin to know that. And we will begin to revel in that food. And we will find ourselves to be people who, like Paul, were more than willing to go to Rome and suffer and die. Who are more than willing to be thrown in prison. Who are more than willing to be rejected. And not just them. And which ones of the, which ones of the Old Testament prophets didn't go through that, right? And Stephen talks about that. And that's before Jesus even came. It was just prophesied and promised. And we see Paul and Peter and James and John and Timothy and Titus and Silas and later John Mark and the rest of them who said, I just want to know Jesus. I just want to know Jesus. I'm convinced it will change everything. I'm convinced that that's what the Spirit does in our lives. And our call is to cry out to Him. To change our hearts. And then in crying out to Him, believe that He is who He says He is. And enjoy Him. Drinking. Feasting on Him. Learning of Him. He will change us. And we will love Him. And you know what we're going to find ourselves doing? We'll find ourselves no longer seeking what is not offered in the city. Instead, we will seek the city that is yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we live in a world that is screaming out that the city offers us some, uh, something. That this world offers us something and it's something great and it does not. We live <clears throat> in a world that screams out that offense is not necessary when it comes to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to see you. And seeing you, that we will see the lostness of this world that we are in. Lord, help us to understand the beauty of the offense as part of the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we will not just merely have a form of godliness, but deny its power. But that we will be a people who
are absolutely enthralled and controlled by you. So glorify yourself in our church and in our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.